G'day, welcome to the first episode of my new podcast, Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman, I'm a big case nerd and I hope you are too. This is where we talk about interesting legal cases. I wade through the legal jargon and the tedious legislative details and procedures and extract the most interesting details of a case. I'm going to cover all sorts of cases in this podcast, mainly focusing on ones involving relationships between persons because those are the ones I find more interesting, definitely more so than corporate law or business law. I'm a solicitor and my area of practice is wills, estates and elder law, so obviously I'm going to gravitate towards those cases. Not only are they the ones I find most interesting, but it's also the ones I need to know for my job. I also dip my toe in family law from time to time. I used to work in family law legal education, so the cases are familiar to me, the law's familiar to me, and they always have that personal element that I find interesting. I'm sure I'll throw in some other cases around medical negligence, people losing their professional license or screwing up their careers, maybe some defamation, basically whatever I find interesting at the time. But if there's any topics or cases that you want me to cover, feel free to let me know. I'm happy for feedback and suggestions. Let's just jump in to our first case. This case jumps between family law and estate law. And I'm going to give away the ending right up front, not making you wait in suspense. Today we are looking at a case of a sham marriage, separation, property settlement, and then a second sham marriage. All perpetrated against a man who did not have the mental capacity to understand what was going on or to consent to any of it, and with the intention of taking his house. If you're wondering how you can have a sham marriage and a sham divorce, keep listening to find out what happened. This case starts confusing and only gets more confusing as it goes on, so bear with me as I try to simplify things. Mr. Lo Sing Ip was 84 years old when he died on the 23rd of August 2017. He was born in China, moved to Australia in 1975, and from 1980 lived at 7 Cooper Street in Redfern, Sydney. Lo Sing Ip died without a will, and there was a legal battle to see who would inherit the estate. Would it be his possible son, Wing Tong Ip? And I say possible son because paternity was challenged. Or would it be his fake second wife, Miss Yang Ling Goro? The legal battle, what I will call the battle for probate, is the subject of a different case which I might cover in a different episode. I say fake second wife because these proceedings I'm covering in this episode start and revolve mainly around a fake first wife. Lisa Peng-Jang, who just so happens to be the former daughter-in-law of the fake second wife, Lang Ying. And Lisa was actively involved in arranging the marriage of her ex-husband to her ex-mother-in-law. Confused yet? It was argued in these proceedings that Lisa took advantage of Lo Sing when he was old and when his mental capacity was diminished to marry him, divorce him and get his house at Redfern. To add a little context, I looked it up and the house is worth about $1.4 million today. Chow Yip was appointed as the administrator of Lo Sing's estate, and she started these legal proceedings against Lisa Chang, seeking to get the house back for Lo Sing. So let's start off and see who was Lo Sing Yip. Lo Sing was described as an unsophisticated, poorly educated man who could not speak or read English and who only ever spoke in Cantonese. He was never heard to speak in Mandarin. Remember that because it will come up later. His doctor, Dr. Pak, had known Lo Sing and had been treating him for about 26 years. He described Lo Sing as a stubborn man who was often preoccupied with looking after his home in Redfern. In conversation, he was difficult to follow and understand, and you had to use simple concepts and words for him to understand you. Before emigrating to Australia in 1975, Lo Sing had been in a relationship and a child was born in 1960 in China. That child was Wing Tong Ip. The mother died shortly after Wing Tong was born and the baby was left in the care of an uncle as Lo Sing had already left China to seek work in Hong Kong. Even though Lo Sing was largely absent from Wing Tong's life, he had always acknowledged that Wing Tong was his son. 
1980, Lo Sing married and soon after purchased a property in Redfern, where he lived with his wife. In 1988, he sponsored his son Wing Tong to come to Australia, and for about two years, Wing Tong and his wife Chow lived in the Redfern property with Lo Sing. Lo Sing's wife died in June 2012, after which he was living alone in the Redfern property. According to his doctor, Dr. Pak, Lo Sing was disorientated without his wife and was unable to perform basic domestic tasks or to arrange his medication. His son and daughter-in-law, Chow, began helping him and providing him with care. Around this time, Dr. Pak provided a medical report to Centrelink, Australia's social security organisation. In the report, he noted that Lo Sing had both physical and psychiatric disabilities. He had early dementia and depression. He was cognitively impaired. He had memory loss and could not remember where he lived, or his date of birth. He required assistance in climbing stairs, dressing, bladder control, feeding himself, and with his general mobility. Almost a year after his wife's death, in April 2013, Lo Sing met Lisa Chang. The villain of this case, if you will. At the time, Lisa was 59 years old and Lo Sing was 79 years old. She also had lost her spouse, who had died only four months earlier. Lisa said they became close as they were both mourning the death of the spouse. She said they enjoyed each other's company, and she began living with Lo Sing at the Redfern property about ten days after they first met. It was later claimed in court proceedings that Lisa had moved into the property as a paying tenant, but Lisa denied this. So, who was Lisa Chang? Lisa was twenty years younger than Lo Sing. She was intelligent and well travelled. She also liked gambling and often made trips to interstate casinos. She was in the habit of carrying gambling chips instead of money. For the first three months from moving into the Redfern property. Lisa was overseas about two thirds of that time, and all up spent about one month in Australia. Despite this, Lisa claimed that Lo Sing fell in love with her and wanted to give her his Redfern property. In July, Lisa took Lo Sing to the office of a conveyancer, Mr. Lee, to arrange for the Redfern property to be transferred into joint names. This would mean that if Lo Sing died, Lisa would own the house by survivorship. Mr. Lee told them that to do the transfer, they would need to pay stamp duty. Stamp duty being based on a percentage of the value of the property, this could end up being quite a lot of money. However, the conveyancer told them that they wouldn't have to pay stamp duty if they were in a de facto relationship, and could get two witnesses to confirm that they were in a de facto relationship. Alternatively, they wouldn't have to pay stamp duty if they were married. On the third of September two thousand and thirteen, Lo Sing and Lisa married in a private ceremony before a celebrant, followed by a banquet attended by six friends. Wing Tong Ip and his wife were not invited to the marriage or even notified of it. And to answer a question some of you may be thinking, when this finally went to trial, Justice Lindsay notes that quote, the evidence is silent as to whether the marriage was consummated. End quote. Immediately after the ceremony, Lisa and Lo Sing did what all new married couples do: they visited the land's title office, where they lodged a notice of death to remove Lo Sing's deceased wife's name from the title to the Redfern property. Six days later, they signed a transfer form to transfer the property into both their names as joint tenants. And again, this means that if Lo Sing died, Lisa would own the house. Later that day, Lisa left Australia for Taiwan. And didn't return for twelve days. I guess you could say she took her honeymoon by herself. She was gone for two weeks, back in Australia, then gone again this time for a month. For the short duration of the marriage, Lisa continued to travel extensively and spent more time out of Australia than not. In November two thousand and thirteen, Lo Sing's daughter-in-law Chow Yip discovered a council rates notice for the Redfern property, which had Lisa's name as co-owner. She asked Lo Sing about it. He was distressed and unable to explain how Lisa came to be co-owner of his home. Chow changed the locks of the house, and Wing Tong began sleeping there at night to look after his father. Not long after, 
Zhao and Lo Sing visited the Lands Titles Office to investigate, and Lo Sing said, quote, I never signed anything, it is my property. Someone has stolen my property, we need to get the police to do something, end quote. Zhao told the Registrar-General that her father-in-law had been tricked into marrying Lisa and putting her on title. The Registrar-General recorded on title to the property, quote, allegations of impropriety, end quote. On 11th December, Dr. Pak provided a medical report that stated that he had been Lo Sing's doctor for 24 years at that stage, that Lo Sing had dementia, and that by that time he had very poor memory, disorientation, and barely responsive to questioning. He was extremely vulnerable to being taken advantage of. On the 25th of December 2013, Lisa returned to Australia, and her former mother-in-law, Miss Guo, was with her. They went to the Redfern property, and there was a confrontation with the family. The court judgment doesn't say exactly what happened at the confrontation, but the end result appears to be that Lisa continued to live in the Redfern house with Lo Sing, and from that time on, Lo Sing had little contact with his son and his son's family. He would visit his son only when Lisa was out of the country. Chow surrendered day-to-day care for Lo Sing to Lisa. Lisa left Australia again on the 8th of January 2014 and didn't return until the 3rd of May. And in May, less than a year after they married, Lo Sing and Lisa separated. Let's do the maths. They met in April 2013. But for calculations, we'll say they met on the 1st of April. That seems appropriate. They separated on the 15th of May 2014. That is a time period of 410 days, or 1 year, 1 month, and 15 days. During that time, Lisa was out of Australia a combined 238 days, meaning she was only in Australia 172 days. During the courting period, the 162 days before they were married, Lisa was out of the country 35 days, so about 22% of the time. During the marriage, of the 248 days, Lisa spent 203 out of the country, about 82% of that time. They spent about 45 days together as a married couple. I've gone off on a mathematical tangent, but I find that interesting and I think it gives a better idea about the relationship. So in May 2014, they separated. Lisa claimed that it was Lo Sing's idea. Later on during the trial, Justice Lindsay found that doubtful, but said it is possible that Lo Sing complained from time to time about her absences and lack of companionship. So they had now officially separated, but I do believe that Lisa was still living in the house and still exerting influence and control over Lo Sing's life. On the 10th of December 2014, Lo Sing had a fall at home and was taken to hospital. They noted his cognitive impairment and tried to convince him to stay, but Lo Sing discharged himself against medical advice. The hospital wrote a letter to Dr. Pak that said, quote, it was difficult to determine whether he did not understand our concerns or whether he was simply stubborn and unwilling to listen to our advice. He was preoccupied with getting home to look after his house. After discussion with you, we have allowed him to discharge against medical advice as we do not feel he is at imminent risk to himself, nor do we have any grounds to schedule him or keep him at a hospital against his will. End quote. There was also a medical note that Lo Sing was worried about people stealing his belongings and had said that his friend is a gambler and she asks him for money. When he didn't give in to her, she left. He had also said that his wife died two years ago and there was now a woman trying to get him to sign documents to give her access to his money. A year after separating, in July 2015, Lo Sing and Lisa divorced. At the time of the divorce, Lisa saw solicitor Miss Yang from Ranjiao Lawyers about a divorce and property settlement. She instructed Miss Yang to prepare a BFA, a binding financial agreement, to record a division of the assets between herself and Lo Sing. The binding financial agreement said that Lo Sing would get $150,000 
and Lisa would get the Redfern property. At the time, it was worth just over $1 million. So a binding financial agreement records how a couple will separate their assets once they have separated. For a binding financial agreement, both sides must get independent legal advice from their own solicitor about the advantages and disadvantages of making the agreement and to negotiate the terms of the agreement on their behalf. Not only this, but the solicitor for each spouse must sign a sworn statement that they provided the necessary advice to their client before their client signed the BFA. So while Lisa's solicitor prepared the BFA, she couldn't witness Lo Sing sign it. Instead, Lisa took Lo Sing next door to another solicitor, Mr. Chen, of Juris Call Legal. Mr. Chen signed the certificate, stating that he had given Lo Sing independent legal advice. Mr. Chen remembers that Lo Sing came to his office, accompanied by a woman who he assumed was his support person, because Lo Sing appeared a little bit fragile. This was most likely Lisa, and she was present throughout the whole meeting. At the same time as signing the BFA, Lo Sing also signed a statement that said, I do not have any children. I confirm that I have received $150,000 from Lisa Chang. I confirm that the BFA has been read to me by a person who is fluent in Cantonese. Mr. Chen advised Lo Sing not to sign the BFA, because even without evaluation of the property, he knew 150000 wasn't enough, but Lo Sing insisted on signing. An application for divorce was done at the same time as the BFA. Because they were applying for divorce less than two years after they married, they were required to obtain a certificate stating that they had attended marriage counselling. The counselling certificate stated that, quote, Only the wife attended counselling. She says her husband is now living with another woman and they both agree to divorce. Wife doesn't want to reconcile, end quote. It also stated that, quote, the husband was invited to attend the counselling to consider reconciliation, but did not, end quote. Flash forward half a year, we're now in July 2015, and Lo Sing has another fall at home and is taken to hospital. Lisa told the hospital that Lo Sing had no family and that she was the person to contact in relation to medical decisions for Lo Sing. She said that she was Lo Sing's friend and that Miss Guo was Lo Sing's partner. She agreed that it would be best if Lo Sing moved to a nursing home. Lo Sing was recorded as having both short and long-term memory problems, hallucinations, delusions, confusion, and disorientation. He needed assistance with personal hygiene, mobility, and medication. He was moved to a nursing home in Chatswood in August 2015, where he would remain for the rest of his life. Lo Sing's son, Wing Tong, and daughter-in-law Chow, learnt that he was living in a nursing home by error. They had received a letter from the Department of Human Services in relation to his care fees. The letter didn't state the name of the nursing home. After some inquiries, they were able to find where Lo Sing was now living. In late 2015, Lisa visited the nursing home, bringing her solicitor, Miss Ying Zhang, with her. They got Lo Sing to sign a couple of documents, including a power of attorney and enduring guardian. The power of attorney appointed Lisa as attorney, able to make financial decisions for Lo Sing and deal with his money and property as if she was him. And the enduring guardian appointed Lisa to make medical decisions for him if he was unable to make them for himself. So, as I said, the power of attorney document gives someone else power over your money and property. So it's an incredibly powerful position and such power can be abused. So when a person appoints their attorney, they sign the document and they have to sign it before a solicitor. The solicitor then also signs to confirm that the person understood the effects of the document they were signing. Miss Ying Zhang signed to confirm that Lo Sing understood the power of attorney document. This was poorly done. All of his medical records by this stage noted that he lacked capacity to make medical decisions. His presence alone in a nursing home is an indication to check his medical records, and from all evidence, his behaviour made his diminished capacity obvious. 
So it is highly doubtful that he understood that he was giving Lisa power to make his financial decisions and deal with his money and property, or that he understood he was appointing her to make medical decisions for him. On the 27th of November 2015, Lisa contacted management of the nursing home and told them she was holding the power of attorney and that Losing was not allowed out of the nursing home without her permission and no one was allowed to visit him without her permission. Two days later, Losing's daughter-in-law wanted to visit him. Nursing home staff contacted Lisa to get her permission. Lisa stated that Losing had no daughter-in-law and instructed that this person not be allowed to see Losing. It is unclear, but it sounds like from the nurse's notes that Wing Tong and Chow went to the nursing home to visit Lo Sing. They were told that they needed Lisa's permission. They were demanding to see him and were threatened that the police would be called if they didn't leave. The day after this confrontation, Lisa gave permission for Lo Sing's fiancé to visit when she flew over from China in two weeks' time. Even though Lisa was appointed as Lo Sing's attorney and guardian, she was still out of the country most of the time. The nursing home needed to speak to Lisa in early January 2016, but she couldn't be contacted. She had nominated Cliff Luke as an alternative contact to herself. However, when the nursing home called this Cliff Luke person, he said that he wasn't aware that he was the backup contact, and he barely knew Lo Sing. On the 19th of March 2016, Lisa and Miss Guo visited the nursing home where they got Lo Sing to sign a notice of intended marriage, which stated that he would be marrying Miss Guo. Around this time, management at the nursing home began looking into what was happening with Lo Sing, perhaps because they had been unable to contact Lisa when they needed to, but they noted that he had done his power of attorney and injuring guardian at a time when he possibly didn't have capacity to do them they decided to make an application to the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal to apply for a new guardian to be appointed for Lo Sing. The facility manager applied to the guardianship division for a guardian and financial manager to be appointed. On the 15th of April, Lo Sing's daughter-in-law Chow applied to be appointed as the guardian and financial manager. While that was in the works and they were waiting for the hearing date, Lisa proceeded to transfer the Redfern property into her sole name. She did so using a transfer form supposedly signed on the 22nd of April 2016 by Lo Sing. She didn't tell anyone, not even the tribunal who was now investigating the matter, that she was transferring the title to the property from joint tenants into her sole name. Perhaps it was the application to the tribunal in itself that spurred her to move on with the transfer, but that's just a guess on my part. On the 26th of April, Miss Guo and two witnesses visited Lo Sing at the nursing home. With them also was a marriage celebrant. There was a small marriage ceremony between Lo Sing and Miss Guo, and legal documents were signed, including an official certificate of marriage and a declaration that there was no legal impediments to the marriage. In the documents, the Redfern property was put as the address of both Lo Sing and Miss Guo. Even though Lisa made all the arrangements for the wedding, she was not present on the day. She said this was because she was very sad that Lo Sing was marrying another woman. There was no mention of the marriage ceremony in the nursing home records, which indicates that none of the staff knew about the ceremony taking place. Miss Guo left Australia 22 days after the wedding and didn't return until after Lo Sing's death. Now, if all of that isn't convoluted and confusing enough, there was also more stuff going on in the background. So, after the second marriage, there were two important things going on almost in parallel. There was what Lisa was doing with the Redfern property, now that it was in her sole name, and there was also proceedings before the tribunal. On the 1st of May 2006, Lisa leased the Redfern property to her ex-husband for seven months at $650 a week in cash. And yes, I do believe this is the ex-husband whose mother is Miss Guo, who has now just married Lo Sing. On the 26th of May, 
the tribunal appointed the New South Wales trustee and guardian to manage Lo Singh's finances for a period of three months, after which the appointment would be reviewed. So basically, the nursing home manager had made this application to the tribunal, saying something dodgy is going on with this man's finances. And the tribunal has gone, yes, we have some suspicions. We're going to appoint the trustee and guardian for three months to look into it further. And then we'll reconvene and see if we need to remove Lisa entirely as the attorney. They also appointed Chow as the guardian for three months while they also invested the guardianship side further. This included interviewing Lo Singh. Lisa took Lo Singh to the office of the New South Wales trustee and guardian where he was interviewed. He told them that he did not have a son and never had any children, that he was happy to transfer his home to Lisa and that Lisa had paid him the $150,000 which he had then given to Miss Guo. Lisa was an active participant in the interview, which I find confusing. If you were trying to get Lo Sing's true opinion of events, why would you have an influential person there with him, especially the person whose the suspicions are all about? Also, the far notes record that Lo Sing had very limited English, so was Lisa supposed to be translating? How could you trust her to do it accurately? It should also be noted that she failed to tell them by this stage that Lo Sing was married to Miss Guo. In July, Lisa mortgaged the property and got $150,000, which she paid directly to the Star Casino, who she apparently owed $150,000. In August, she sold the Redfern property for $1,050,000. She sold it off-market without any advertising, as if she didn't want anyone to know what she was doing. She said she sold the house because she was afraid to live there alone now that Miss Guo had gone back to China. She used the proceeds to pay off the mortgage, and later on she bought a unit at Piermont Street, Piermont, for just under $500,000, two garage spaces also in Piermont for $67,000, and another unit in Harris Street in Piermont for $615,000, which just so happened to be close to the Star Casino. Not insinuating anything there. The Piermont unit at Harris Street, the one that was close to the casino, Lisa leased out for $680 a week. She later sold that property in February 2018 to her ex-husband for $600,000, which was $15,000 less than she had paid for it. So around the time that Lisa had sold the Redfern property and started buying up all of these other properties, the guardianship tribunal was reconvening and they confirmed that uh, Lisa was not appropriate to be the attorney or guardian and they maintained that the New South Wales trustee and guardian would continue to manage Lo Singh's finances and his daughter-in-law Chow would continue to be his guardian. Lisa participated in the hearing and argued that Lo Sing did not need a financial manager or guardian, which is quite contradictory as she had earlier that year been giving the nursing home instructions on his behalf. She also didn't tell the tribunal that Lo Sing was married to Miss Guo, which would have been absolutely relevant for the tribunal to know because they could have considered appointing a spouse as the financial manager and guardian. But it also might not have been in Lisa's best interest if the tribunal or the trustee and guardian, having found out about this second marriage, decided to look into its validity. Lo Sing died on the 23rd of August 2017, a year after the events at the guardianship tribunal were settled. Neither Lisa nor Miss Guo attended the funeral, sent flowers or offered condolences. Neither offered to pay for the funeral Wing Tong and Zhao did that. A year after his death, in October 2018, Zhao was appointed administrator of Lo Sing's estate. Why did it take over a year? Well, Lo Sing died without a will, which means his next of kin inherits. But who was that? Was it his son, Wing Tong, or his wife, Miss Guo? There was a legal contest between Wing Tong and Miss Guo about who would be entitled to inherit the estate. That was to be determined in September 2021, 
And as I said, I might do a separate podcast episode on that case. In the meantime, Jowl was appointed as administrator to handle the estate. The very first thing she did was lodge a caveat on the Piermont Street, Piermont property, the two garage spaces, claiming that Lisa held them on constructive trust for Lo Singh. First, what is a caveat? A caveat is registered on the title of a property and prevents other transactions such as the sale or transfer of the property so long as that caveat remains on title. It's kind of like a holding card. In this case, it was to prevent Lisa from selling or transferring the properties she had purchased until the court could determine whether the estate had a right to them. And what is a constructive trust? Well, a constructive trust is where one person holds legal title to property, in this case Lisa, but they hold it for the benefit of another person, which would be Lo Sing or his estate. There is no formal trust document or agreement, but the court may find that it would be unjust to let the title holder, Lisa, get the full benefit of ownership to the detriment of the beneficial owner, Lo Sing. The court hearing. Let's first look at capacity because capacity was obviously a huge issue in this case. The estate argued that Lo Sing didn't have capacity to do any of it. To marry Lisa, to sign the transfer giving her half the house, to sign the binding financial agreement and the transfer that gave her the whole house, to sign to sign the divorce documents, to sign the power of attorney and enduring guardian, or to marry Miss Guo. The estate argued that for the whole time, Lo Sing had dementia and his decision-making capacity was severely limited. Lisa, on the other hand, said that Lo Sing had the capacity the whole time and did everything, every single transaction of his own free will. Whether a person has mental capacity is determined in relation to the particular function or task they are undertaking, and depends upon their condition at that time. For example, a person might have capacity to write a message in a birthday card, to know who the card is for, what a birthday is, to decide what message they want to write, and then to do it. But at the same time, they may lack the capacity to do something more complex, like understand the nature and effect of assigning a transfer form which gives their house away. The transactions in this case span several years, so the court needed to consider whether Lo Sing had mental capacity to do any of the specific tasks at any of those points in time. Several witnesses gave evidence to prove Lo Sing's lack of capacity. This included his doctor, Dr. Pak, a friend, a long-time neighbour, his son, his daughter-in-law, and their children. There was also the expert evidence of geriatrician Dr. Tully Rosenfeld. Dr. Pack stated that even before the death of his wife in July 2012, Lo Sing had dementia and was unable to manage the medication for his wife or himself. He was also given to wandering aimlessly. The daughter-in-law, Chow Ip, gave evidence that from mid-2012, Lo Sing was often confused, forgetful, disinclined to shower and maintain a clean house, and prone to lose things or get lost himself. He was also having difficulty dealing with his money. After his wife's death, he became reclusive, often confining himself in his room and living in decrepit conditions. Longtime family friend Dorothy noticed that Lo Sing had become aggressive and would make silly allegations against people. Even Miss Guo, the second wife, gave evidence that Lo Sing was reclusive, poorly groomed and incontinent. Dr. Tully Rosenfeld provided a report to the court. He noted that a person with dementia may still be able to do high-level tasks. It all depends on what part of the brain's functions have been impaired by the dementia. I think we all understand that. Dementia is a chronic illness that affects your brain and your capacity over decades and it can be incremental, it can be slight, it can increase, it can be completely incapacitating and it really depends on case by case. It doesn't follow a timeline. There were scans of Lo Sing's brain taken in July 2015 
which showed substantial wastage in his brain tissue and significant atrophy in the brain. In the report, Dr. Rosenfeld noted that from September 2013, Lo Sing had a dementing illness, likely vascular brain disease, with impaired executive function. He would not have been able to properly understand the consequences of marriage. He would not have been able to properly recall the background, consider and understand the complexity of doing a binding financial agreement, or doing a power of attorney or enduring guardian. Those are complex legal documents, and you really do need to have the capacity to understand the effect of them. In Dr. Rosenfeld's opinion, by 2013, Lo Sing's thinking was so simplistic and childlike, he would have been unable to understand what was going on with complex transactions. Taken together, the evidence created the image of an elderly, unsophisticated man with cognitive impairment and dementia. On Lisa's side, the witness she called were herself, her former mother-in-law, Miss Guo, the supposed second wife, and the conveyancer, Mr. Lee, and two solicitors. Lisa was not found to be a very reliable witness, and neither was Miss Guo. To quote the judgment, In cross-examination, Miss Guo claimed a poor memory and confused events. She embraced speculation that Lo Sing received $150,000 in cash from Lisa at the time of execution of the Biney Financial Agreement and that he may have dissipated it all over a period just over a week or so in partying with friends, a matter she claimed to have been of no concern to her despite the fact that at the time she intended to marry the deceased. Her evidence does not ring true, end quote. In contrast, Lisa had said that he gave the $150,000 to Miss Guo, so obviously they didn't get their story straight. The conveyancer, Mr. Lee, and solicitor, Miss Yang, gave evidence, but the court noted that they hadn't made many notes or records at the time of their meetings, and were mainly relying on their memory of events from several years earlier. Mr. Lee was the conveyancer who arranged for the house to be transferred into joint names. He arranged the transfer acting for both Lo Sing as the transferor and Lisa as the transferee. But he got all these instructions from Lisa. Which is a bit of a conflict of interest. Miss Yang was the solicitor who drafted the binding financial agreement as per Lisa's instructions and advised Lisa on the separation and divorce. She is also the solicitor who witnessed Lo Sing sign the power of attorney and certified that he understood it at the time. Justice Lindsay said that neither Mr. Lee nor Ms. Shang appeared to appreciate that there was a conflict of interest between Lo Sing and Lisa. What benefited one of them was to the detriment of the other, so you couldn't adequately be acting for both at the same time. In this case, Lo Sing was in steps losing ownership of his house and Lisa was gaining it, and the instructions were all coming from Lisa. Justice Lindsay noted that, quote, Miss Shang tended to deflect criticism of herself and to accept personal professional responsibility only begrudgingly by attributing documents to a junior solicitor or a clerk working under her supervision, end quote. She also saw nothing wrong in lodging a document with the Lands Title Office that Lo Sing had signed on the 2nd of April 2015 when she knew Lo Sing had dementia at the time and would not have capacity to sign the document. She had also arranged Mr Chen to provide legal advice to Lo Sing about the binding financial agreement, but failed to tell Mr Chen that she had already witnessed Lo Sing and Lisa sign the transfer form for the property. Mr Chen, who they arranged to give Lo Sing legal advice about the BFA, was found to be an honest witness. Quote, In retrospect, he would have acted more prudently had he, in light of his reservations about the binding financial agreement, simply refused to witness the deceased's signature or to provide a certificate of independent advice. This is what he should have done. End quote. In relation to Lisa's claim that Lo Sing fell head over heels in love with her and wanted to give her the Redfern property, Justice Lindsay was not persuaded. He stated, quote, If this is correct, which is doubtful, the deceased must have been irrationally besotted 
totally infatuated with her to offer up his principal asset, his family home, as a gift to a woman he had just met, end quote. Justice Lindsay ultimately found that Lo Sing lacked capacity at all time. Lack of capacity in itself is not enough to have the transaction set aside. You also need to show that Lisa knew about the lack of capacity, or at the very least, ought to have known about it. Justice Lindsay found that Lo Sing was so transparently incapable that Lisa would have known that he did not have capacity to do the transactions that she had orchestrated. Even Lisa's conduct, the court found, was consistent with the belief that Lo Sing did not have capacity to understand anything complex. Quote, from the beginning to end, she acted in a manner calculated to take advantage of his vulnerability to exploitation. End quote. So he found that Lisa knew that Lo Sing lacked capacity, but even if that hadn't been the case, Justice Lindsay said that it was so obvious that she ought to have known. That being finding, let's look at the validity of the first marriage. A marriage can be declared null and void if one of the parties was not mentally capable of understanding the nature and effect of the marriage ceremony, and therefore could not provide real consent to the marriage. The court can make a declaration that a marriage is void even after a party to the marriage has died. The court found that within a short time of meeting Lo Sing, Lisa arranged for them to get married so she could get an interest in the house without having to pay stamp duty. Straight after the marriage, she went back overseas without making a provision for Lo Sing's care. Lisa didn't produce any evidence to prove the validity of her marriage. She didn't call any witnesses, not the celebrant, the two witnesses to the wedding, the friends who attended the banquet, and not the friend she said introduced her to Lo Sing. The transfer. So, a conveyancer arranged the transfer of the property to be held as joint tenants with Lisa. Wouldn't the conveyancer have noticed if Lo Sing didn't know what he was doing? The conveyancer should have done, but in this situation, the conveyancer was taking instructions from Lisa and wasn't really acting independently. He also hadn't turned his mind to considering whether Lo Sing understood what was happening. It wasn't just transferring half his house to Lisa. It was a joint tenancy, and Lisa was much younger. In effect, he was surrendering the right to leave his house in his will. Because with a joint tenancy, when the first tenant dies, the second tenant owns the house. And it was very likely that Lo Sing was going to be the first tenant to die. It was also a manifestly improvident transaction. It was his primary asset that he needed to fund his ongoing retirement. He got nothing in exchange for it and no guarantee that his new wife would take care of him. Justice Lindsay noted that, quote, The speed, persistence, and determination of the first defendant in acquiring title to the Redfern property through a process of marriage and divorce without any real acceptance of an obligation to support him supports an inference that she knew of his in- incapacity to deal with complex decisions and worked methodically to take advantage of it, end quote. Moving on to the binding financial agreement, in relation to that and the legal advice Lo Sing received, the court noted that the solicitor advising Lo Sing didn't have sufficient information about the situation to provide adequate advice. Quote, there were many things bearing upon the deceased's rights and obligations he was not told. And I'll paraphrase the rest. Mr. Chen was not told that part of the arrangement between the deceased and Lisa according to her, was that the deceased could live in the Redfern property for the rest of his life. He was not told that Lo Sing had owned the Redfern property as his family home for several decades before his purported marriage to Lisa. He was not told that Lo Sing owned 100% of the Redfern property before the purported marriage. He was not told that during the period of a short marriage, Lisa had been away overseas for over 200 days. He was not provided with proof that Lo Sing had in fact received $150,000 in cash. He was not told that Lo Sing had a son, a daughter-in-law, or grandchildren. Um, he was not told of assets of leases, such as jewellery, antiques, and luxury handbags that she evidently owned. So, you know, 
how is he to assess and advise on this separation and division of their assets when he's lacking so much information about their relationships and their assets? And even if Lo Sing had received adequate advice, he was suffering from a progressive form of vascular dementia and did not understand his own future needs and care and estate. Even if the documents were explained to him fully, he would not have understood the nature of the documents and the consequences that this left him with no financial provision for his future. Further, the court was not satisfied that the sum of $150,000 or any money was ever paid to Lo Sing. While Lisa claimed she paid him the money by a series of cash payments on unspecified dates, there was otherwise no proof that he received money. And moving on to the validity of the second marriage. Even after they had divorced, Lisa continued to control Lo Sing's affairs in order to protect her interest and those of Miss Guo with whom she was closely aligned. Justice Lindsay found that Lisa introduced Lo Sing to her former mother-in-law, an elderly woman who normally resided in China, as a pretext for a divorce and property settlement. Lisa claimed that Lo Sing became tired of her many absences and turned to Lang Ying for companionship. The administrator of the estate, however, claimed that Lisa introduced the two and engineered the marriage between them purely for the purpose of preventing any investigation of her acquisition of the Redfern property. The marriage was kept secret from the staff at the nursing home. None of them knew it was being arranged and none of them knew the marriage had actually taken place. Miss Guo's excuse for keeping it secret was that in Chinese tradition, if she told anyone about the marriage, she would be required to give them a gift, which she didn't want to do. The marriage celebrant was called to give evidence and said that he did the ceremony in Mandarin and had been told that Lo Sing spoke and understood Mandarin. He did note that Lo Sing repeated his vows partly in Cantonese, but this didn't appear to cause him concern and he finished the ceremony. If you recall what I said earlier, Lo Sing could not speak Mandarin. He could only speak Cantonese. Justice Lindsay noted that this second marriage as well, quote, the evidence is silent as to whether the marriage was consummated, end quote. As to Lisa's excuse for not attending the wedding, because she was so sad to be losing Lo Sing to another woman, Justice Lindsay said that it was more likely she sought to distance herself from the events to try to hide that she had been behind it all. This second marriage was not only kept secret from the nursing home staff, but even Lo Sing's son and daughter-in-law didn't know about the marriage until these legal proceedings had commenced. I'm sure that came as a massive shock to them. Justice Lindsay noted that he didn't need to determine whether this second marriage was valid or not. That was to be determined in separate proceedings that were being litigated between Wing Tong and Miss Guo. So let's look at the equitable remedies that were available to the estate. The estate had also argued that even if Lo Sing was found to have capacity, Lisa got the property by unconscionability. Lisa argued that Lo Sing never had dementia and that everything he did, he did because he wanted to. Moreover, she argued that Lo Sing's son, Wing Tong Ip, and his wife, Xiao Ip, only had a relationship with Lo Sing because they wanted to get his wealth and were motivated by greed. I think that's called projection. When you accuse someone of doing the very thing that you yourself have done, Oh well, having determined that Lo Sing lacked capacity, the court didn't need to go into this alternative argument in detail, but Justice Lindsay did note that nevertheless he would have found that Lo Sing had a special disadvantage that seriously affected his ability to protect himself. He was vulnerable to exploitation due to his lack of sophistication, education and literacy and emotional state following the death of his wife. That Lisa knew about this and it was what attracted her to him and she exploited him and took calculated steps to take his Redfern property from him. Justice Lindsay also noted that a case could be made of undue influence or breach of fiduciary obligations, but having confirmed unconscionability, there was no need to go into any other equitable remedies that might be available. 
the outcome. Lo Singh was mentally incapable of understanding the nature and effect of the marriage to Lisa on the 3rd of September 2013. He may have known that he was participating in a marriage ceremony, but not much else. The marriage was therefore void. Interestingly, the court noted that a void marriage cannot be validated by its dissolution. That is to say, just because the parties have divorced and the marriage is over, isn't enough, because that assumes that there was a marriage in the first place. The court needed to make an order that the marriage was void, so that matters could be treated as if the marriage had never taken place. This was particularly relevant in this case, because if the marriage was found to have existed, and was only over now that they were divorced, as a previously financial dependent spouse, Lisa could have claimed to be eligible to receive greater provision from Lo Singh's estate. But as the marriage was void, they were never married in the first place and Lisa was not eligible and Lisa had no claim on his estate. Okay, secondly, Lo Singh did not have the mental capacity to sign the transfer or the binding financial agreement. Even if valid, the binding financial agreement made was manifestly improvident transactions. Lo Sing was to receive just $150,000 and Lisa everything else. Even though she made no financial contributions to the marriage, no domestic care or any other contributions, this was obviously an unfair division. She had brought no property to the marriage and, quote, she largely abandoned Lo Sing after their marriage except to the extent necessary to take control of the Redfern property, end quote. Throughout their marriage, she spent more time apart from Lo Singh than with him. And the court also found that he never did get that $150,000. The court found Lisa to be a superficially plausible witness, that she was in fact living a lie. As for her profession of transcendent love, transcendent, what the? As for her profession of transcendent love for Lo Singh, well, it didn't ring true to anyone. To quote Justice Lindsay again, quote, Any affection she manifested for the deceased was concocted, brief, and intermittent if judged against the amount of time she spent away from his company. Throughout the time of her acquaintance with the deceased, she appears to have endeavoured to control the access other people may have had to him and to have moved persistently towards the acquisition of his principal asset, his home of many years, leaving him to life in a nursing home funded by his pension, end quote. When Lisa pointed to her visits to Lo Sing in the nursing home as a sign of her continuing affection for him, it was found that she only did this to protect her investment and keep track of Lo Sing and what was happening with him. If you recall, she was preventing his son and daughter-in-law from accessing him and thereby possibly providing him with any help. Justice Lindsay also found that her continued argument that Lo Singh never had dementia, despite all the evidence otherwise, made her look even less credible. Quote, She is an intelligent, sophisticated, determined, forceful and well-travelled woman. The deceased's lack of sophistication, his poor education and his weak mind would have been obvious to her throughout their acquaintance. She could not have but known that he was vulnerable to exploitation, as was the fact. She deliberately took advantage of his vulnerability over about four years to secure his property for herself, isolating him as best she could from the plaintiff, her husband and their children, people he had recognised as family, end quote. The court ordered that Lisa held the Redfern property on constructive trust for Lo Singh and must account to his estate for the proceeds of $1,050,000. These funds can be traced to the properties she had purchased, but if that didn't cover the full amount, she is still liable to pay the rest under equitable compensation. Costs follow the event, which is a phrase used in law, and it basically means that the loser pays the winner's legal fees. Costs follow the event. If you lose, you pay. In this case, Lisa being the loser was ordered to pay the estate's legal fees. After these legal proceedings had commenced, the court made orders that Lisa was not to deal with the funds or the properties she had gotten from the proceeds of the Redfern property. However, it was noted that she had continued to gamble and dissipated the funds. 
To what extent she had dissipated the funds was not stated. So orbiting this immense drama that is Lisa and Lo Sing and Miss Guo, there have been other parties around the edges as well. So let's have a look at what happened to them. In case you were wondering if the other parties involved got any repercussions themselves, such as being sued for compensation for breach of duty owed to the deceased estates. So the estate had sued the conveyancer, the one who had helped transfer the property into joint names, um, taking instructions from Lisa and in conflict of interest because he was supposedly acting for Losing as well. And the conveyancer agreed to pay the estate um, over $100,000. The Ren Zhao Group Law Practice, um, where Miss Yang worked, and she had done the binding financial agreement and the power of attorney in Enduring Guardian, they agreed to pay $446,000 to the estate. Jury Core Group, which was the solicitor who had supposedly provided Losing with independent legal advice, they agreed to pay $116,000 to the estate. So settled compensation claims with all of them had totaled about $700,000 to the estate. Lessons. There are a lot of things you can take out of this case. Personally, for me, coming from an elder law background, I am more attuned to looking for potential elder abuse and um, situations that give rise to elder abuse. And that is what stood out to me so much in this case. Uh, We need to be more aware of the potential risks to older people who are isolated and have capacity issues like Lo Singh did. They are vulnerable to exploitation, and anyone who has dealings with them should be on the lookout for red flags. In this case, there were many professionals and people involved who could have identified along the way that Lo Singh was being exploited. The solicitors, the conveyancer, the celebrant, the guests at the wedding, the witnesses of the weddings, anyone providing a service to Lo Singh. As well as being on the lookout, ready to jump in and get help if needed, we can also do little things to try to address the vulnerability. Um, in this case, you could almost imagine Lisa meeting this man and almost seeing um, money symbols in her eyes when she sees that he is vulnerable, he's missing his wife, he's lacking capacity, and he owns a property in Redfern. I mean, it just seems like ripe for exploitation. If you know an older person who is isolated, maybe reach out to them. Be someone they can come to if they need help. Or keep an eye on your older neighbours and vulnerable people in your community so that you'll notice if a stranger is coming around acting suspicious. Um, In Australia, if you think someone is at risk, you can speak with a solicitor or call the Ageing and Disability Abuse Helpline. The number is 1800 628 221. If you suspect any older person is being abused or manipulated or, you know, like this, it was a a supposed love relationship, but clearly not right, you could call this number, as I said, 1-800-628-221, and they can investigate it. You don't have to. They can look into it. For yourself, consider whether you too might be vulnerable and what you can do to protect yourself. Appointing a power of attorney while you have capacity to do so is a good way to protect your assets should you lose capacity to manage them yourself. You can also appoint a guardian, a person you trust, to make lifestyle and medical decisions for you if you ever lose capacity to make them for yourself. Also consider your own potential isolation. Are you too cut off from the world around you? Are your only contacts contacts through the internet? What can you do to maybe build a community of people around you who love and care for you or who will at least notice if things aren't right? If you have concerns about a person in your life and feel like they might be trying to take control of your finances and make decisions for you, you should also speak with a solicitor about your legal rights and steps you can take to protect yourself. 
So obviously that was what I took from that case coming from an elder law perspective, but I'd really love to hear other people's opinions about what you think. Um, so definitely feel free to message me, drop me a line, drop me an email. Happy to talk about these cases and get other people's input. Thank you for listening to this, my first episode of my new podcast, Just In Case Law. Um, hopefully you'll join me for the next one. <laughs>